Thank you very much, Matt, for that great reminder of how we are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. What a great thing. It's great to be here with you. My name is Pastor, for some reason I almost said Pastor Matt. Um, I was going to be snarky and say another comment, but I won't. I'm the lead pastor here at, uh, at Knollwood. It was, uh, I was preaching for a sister church last week, um, and it's great to be able to help our sister churches out, uh, but it's better to be with church family. So it's great to be with you. As you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, that's where we're going to be at, continuing on from where Pastor Matt preached last week. And as you flip over there, to that passage. Um, if you're looking for a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you uh, somewhere, hopefully. Uh, that blue Bible, it would be page 536 is what you're looking for. But as you flip over there to Acts chapter 12, uh, you know, there's these things that come along where you kind of hear this term called lifetime, right? Things are to last a lifetime, right? Like you buy a, I don't know, a Toyota because it's going to last a lifetime. It's not true, but it's, it, that's what they say, right? I have a Toyota, and let me tell you, I love it. Uh, it's not going to last a lifetime. Or you hear those things called, like, win $1,000 a week uh, for a lifetime. Have you ever looked at the small print? It actually says 25 years. I'm not that old. A normal case. I will not make it to the end of my life, those $1,000. My wife was uh, joking around because she found this article um, in the news uh, this week called uh, mocking all of these lifetime supplies of things that people won. So one person, I think, won 500 bags, or sorry, lifetime supply of M&Ms, which turned out to be about 500 bags of M&Ms. And not like those big party ones, like the little ones, right? And I was looking at that going, challenge accepted, right? That might last a year, uh, not a lifetime. Or uh, someone won a lifetime supply of oil changes, which uh, in the small print they found out only lasted as long as they had the car. So once they sold that car, well, there went all of their lifetime supply of oil changes. You know, when we think about lifetime, nothing seems to last. Yet we use that term all the time, all the time. Nothing seems to last in our world. Even the things that are advertised as lasting don't last. And putting our hope in things of this world that don't last would be a false sense of hope. But even allowing our perspective of this world based on things that won't last is also bad. Like the current circumstances that are in my life, they're going to last forever. I feel like they're not going to ever end, we may say. But things of this world don't last. Many things in this world are said to last forever or a lifetime, but that's just not true. And last week, Pastor Matt introduced us to a man named King Herod. Herod is out to kill the apostles and to stop the church from growing. He tried to do that by capturing uh, James, who he did successfully kill, but for some reason, out of God's mysterious, sovereign, provident will, released Peter. And we see how Luke wants us to see something very important. And it's actually an ongoing theme, and it's actually one of the reasons why 
we wanted to get into Acts because we feel like in this world we can be losing, but God's word never loses. And we see that 2,000 years ago. We see that with judges. We see that throughout the Bible. But now King Herod is back to being king. Here we see how Luke wants us to see something very important. The church will grow in the face of the realities of this world, pointing to a greater power than Herod and Satan. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open the Acts chapter 12, and we'll be reading from verses 20 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. So the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastius, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seats upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Father, even as I end that with saying this is the word of the Lord, I'm reminded of this true fact that your word will never end. Your word continues. And it tells us so much of who you are. God, I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive what your word has to say to us this day. We pray that above all, as we continue to worship you through the listening of your word being preached, that you are made much of, that you are glorified. And Lord, I want to do that, and I can't do it on my own. I want to praise your name, but I can't do it on my own. I want this to turn out well, and I definitely can't do that on my own. So by your spirit, help me to pray this sermon with what is needed, with the necessary power and appropriate affection Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Verses 20 to 23, we see what will not last. Kind of a blatant example of what that is, right? In verse 20, we see King Herod was angry with these two city-states. They were independently governed city-states on, in this, uh, on the Mediterranean. We don't really know why they were bickering between each other. But it could have been for some sort of economic uh, competition or whatever it may be, as those two cities were on the Mediterranean. Officials from these two cities came to Herod and they convinced Herod's chamberlain, his most trusted advisor. Maybe they kind of, you know, greased the wheels a little bit. I don't know. Hey, can we have an audience with, can we have an audience with King Herod? And you begin to see something of Herod's character becoming up here. There's pride, a significant amount of pride. 
And even we, we are blessed with uh, other sources, extra biblical sources, historical accounts of this. So we can actually go and see some other details that Luke doesn't bring, us and bring to us. But in a Jewish historian named Josephus talked about how Herod loved, he just loved to flaunt his power. You ever meet someone like that? They like get a joy and a snicker every time they kind of squish somebody down with their thumb. And he loved to do that. He was a man who spoke, he, he, he loved to flaunt his power, and he was a man of great reputation, and he knew it, and he sought to cultivate it, and he knew how to cultivate it. And you see that coming out here in a form of control. So Herod gets what he wants with these two city-states, these two independent cities coming to him. And in the Greek, the text is actually like they're, they're begging him. They're, 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 they're almost to the point of, you know how people are so desperate, they've kind of crossed the line from begging, and now they're even demanding? You know, like that? They're desperate. They're desperate because their cities depend upon Herod for food. So in verse 21, we see even more pride beginning to show up within Herod's heart, and you can see it building up. In the previous chapters, in the, he was flaunting his power by seeking to snuff out the church by capturing James and Peter and putting them into prison. I'm going to show who's true power here. I can, I can snuff these people out. Well, God had another plan there. And God begins to deal with it. Herod was a man who was against God and against his people. And God won't deal with it right away necessarily, but he will deal with it. And he will deal with it in the final way. And we need to keep that in back of our minds, what Herod has done to both James by killing him and Peter by imprisoning him as, and his intentions of killing Peter. As we continue to go on here, this is a man who was just full of himself and completely and utterly against God and his people. To the point that we even see in the text that he put on his royal robes. And he flaunts his power by putting these on. And as we see in other accounts of this, what's happening at this moment, we, he's probably lined his robe with silver. You know what happens when you walk outside and your robes are lined with silver? You begin to glow. And not like the radiation type, but like you look like the sun. You're glowing like the sun. He's portraying himself as, a, as the divine provider flaunting his power and his pride against God. And once again, there's pride. He thought he was the one who provided all, so he gives this amazing speech, right? To the point that in verse 22, we see the people shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, obviously, I don't think that the people thought that he was actually a God. They're just flattery. That's why flattery is a sin. But we see this come through. You know, and I was thinking about this as I was dwelling upon this. The goal of standing here and preaching is not to please you, believe it or not. Sorry if I burst your bubble. If I did, you need to go repent. 
It's not to hear the words, Pastor, that was a great sermon. Although, tension, please. Yeah. Hearing encouragement is good, but there's a fine line between that and flattery. But to hear those words, Pastor, isn't our God great, is the goal of the exhortation and the preaching of God's word. But Herod was more concerned with himself than God or others. He didn't stop them from saying those things. He encouraged it. He's like, okay, a little bit more. No, 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 no. Okay, 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 okay. He is the one that made all of this possible after all. He's the one that brought these great independent cities squabbling to him, begging for food. He did it all. He, he, he killed James. You know, he, he made the Jewish people happy. And about this Peter guy, we're just going to ignore that, and we're going to kill everybody else who had any contact with that. He is the one who spoke these words, after all. He is the one that gave all that money. He's the one that, whose grandfather built this amazing stadium in which he is giving this speech in this town called Caesarea. He deserves to be heard and admired in the words that have been said, after all. You know, for us today, it would be like saying, it was these things that made this. It's, you know, I built this business by the sweat of my brow. I did this. I deserve it all. I served in church for 50 years. Therefore, I deserve recognition. It's the same attitude. You know, it was the good-looking pastor, the swanky building, that grew God's church. And they say that on purpose. I gave all that money. I've done all these things for the church. Look what I've done. I praise God for the many who faithfully, with joy and humility, without grumbling, financially give as worship, who serve in many ways from our building to our, our nursery and our kids' ministries and our leaders of our small groups and in so many other ways. I praise God for you. Some of us need to look at Herod and kind of do some eternal looking, though. But verse 23, we see the outcome of this pride that comes through immediately. What does the word immediately mean? It means immediately. An angel of the Lord struck him down. After you hear these words, as his heart begins to get full of himself, as you probably could see his head getting bigger with his ego. But God knows the heart. And just like how the angel struck Peter to wake him up in prison, an angel of the Lord strikes him down. We actually read in Josephus' accounts that he keeled over immediately in pain at this moment and was brought back to the palace where he laid in agonizing pain for four days until he died. You know, historians may say that this was just a coincidence, but here is God who gets the credit for how he brings his sovereign hand at work. 
God can remove the worst of men from their positions of power because kings and kingdoms do not last. The angel of the Lord tells us something very important. His actions tell us something very important. Herod thought he was a divine provider. He thought he was a God, that somehow God needed him and he didn't need God. He was accepting that pride. And you can see his head growing with pride as he accepts the empty praises of these people. But the angel shows that there is only one God. Why does this happen? The text says, Luke tells us, he did not give glory to God. See, because pride does something very evil. Pride doesn't allow space for God in the life of someone who doesn't acknowledge that there is only one God. But God deserves everything. He's actually the only one worthy of everything. We actually see, again, in other historical accounts of this time that Herod did not repudiate the adoration of the crowd and his flattery. He didn't turn it down. He accepted it. He wanted more and more of it. And he stood there in his shiny robe with his nose up in the air and said, yeah, I am a God. The only response to knowing that there is one God and that he is holy is, and that he is the divine provider is to humbly fall on your knees in worship and praise. I'm just a signpost pointing to the almighty glorious God who alone is worthy of praise. May I decrease and may he increase. So think about what he had done to James and Peter in the previous section that Pastor Matt was preaching on. It was for the praise of men. And this is actually something called fear of man, and it's a deadly sin of seeking praise of men rather than the praise of God. And it's rooted again in pride. And Herod was doing self aggrandizement and he was promoting himself, and these, this flies in the face of Christian discipleship. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisee in John 5, he said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Herod brought these two cities to their knees. He gave this great speech and his pride and self-exaltation was clear to everyone who could see, but God saw it too. James 4, 6 to 10 says something very profound and important because it's God's word. It says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. May I remind you that James is writing to a church right now. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are in perverted speech. I hate, he says. Philippians 2 verse 3. 
Do, no, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. But here's the thing. There's not one person in this room who's not guilty of pride. Not one, including me. The Bible teaches that because of Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruits because they desired to be like God was an act of prideful rebellion against God's authority. Just like Herod. And on a side note, Adam and Eve thought of themselves and were paying and we're still paying for their sin. They th- probably didn't even think about the ramifications. Sin is not an isolated thing. It affects those around you. But because of that act, sin entered the world through that one act, and all of humanity inherited a sinful nature that is full of pride and desire for ex- self-exhortation. And what happens to Herod is just a picture of what happens to all of us because of our sin. Our sin leads to death, a death that is far worse than any sort of agonizing act of being eaten from the inside out with worms. Hell is the absence of Jesus Christ, but the presence of God's just wrath being poured out on all those who reject him. It's a place of eternal fire, outer darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Those are just a few descriptions of what God's word says hell is. And whatever may face here, the worst of this life, that this life may offer you, the worst pain that Herod went through in those four days is nothing in comparison to eternity in hell. Nothing. That he is experiencing for all of eternity. Hell is experienced by the whole person, Matthew 5. Hell is painful. It is in the presence of God in wrath, Luke 16, 25. Hell is eternal, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Hell is deserved, and hell is the, for the unrepentant. And when we think about this, as painful and gruesome as the death of Herod may be, because being eaten from the inside out by worms, not exactly the best way to go. It was still judgment and fades in comparison to what he is experiencing and currently experiencing and how as he is separated eternally from Jesus Christ, but is experiencing the whole wrath of God. And I'm saying this on purpose because I think we need a healthier understanding of the doctrine of hell. We do. I do. I was smacked across the face this week about this. Because hell is the affirmation that God is just, that he is fair, and that he deals with humanity always in the right way. Hell exists, and we all deserve it because we have all sinned. And I could just leave it there and be like, now we'll rest in that one. But there's a way out of hell. And that's why the good news is so good. Because here's the real scandal of the universe. It's not that there is a hell that we all deserve to go to, because that is true. But that there is a heaven that is offered to all. Because the one who deserves everything humbled himself to pay the price for our sin, as Philippians 2, verses 6 to 9 says, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins and rose from the grave so that all those who repent, who turn from their sins and acknowledge that God is right and that he is worthy of praise and believes that putting all of our trust in the all-sufficient death and payment of Jesus Christ on the cross will be saved. Not maybe, not kind of, will be. So as sure as hell is real, heaven is. It makes heaven so much more glorious when I understand what God by his grace saved me from. And this is why we go out on Friday nights. This is why. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we disciple men and women with the hope that one day they will go and church other, plant other churches here in London where we can one day, hopefully one day, send other people to other churches that are struggling and help them out because there is only one kingdom and one gospel. That's why we want to raise up missionaries to go and plant other churches in other parts of this world because hell is real. And we all deserve it. But there is a heaven offered to all who believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. That's when you say amen. Church, do you believe hell is real? I think sometimes we don't act like it. Do you believe that whatever Herod experienced in those four days is nothing in comparison to what he is fighting in right now in hell? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a way out of hell and that Jesus is his name? Church, we are disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ because we believe this. I once heard someone say, and it breaks my heart, that they were tired of hearing that we are disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, that slogan. Folks, if I believe that hell is real and that there is a way out of it, I will never be sick of being reminded that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I have hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ, who died for my sin and rose again. And I will be never tired of being reminded because of that hope, I've been called to go out and tell other people of the hope I have in Jesus Christ. Because hell is real, but there's a way out of it. And his name is Jesus. So look, there are only two options when we look at Herod. You can remain prideful or humble yourself. The Old Testament gives us many examples of what happens when people exalt oneself or allow other people to exalt them. And God shows over and over how he will bring that person down. I was reminded about this in my own personal devotions and, uh, on Friday, I think it was, in 2 Chronicles 26 to 16 with King Uriah. He starts off so good. And then he gets old and everything gets comfortable. And then there's this scathing thing that says in verse 16, but when he was strong, he what? He grew proud to his destruction. 
He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He thought he was the man. And God struck him down at that moment with leprosy, and he died too, an agonizing death of leprosy. This is all part of God's wrath and justice, and this shows us how much he hates pride. But those who humble themselves, who are lowly, who are needy, will be lifted up. And this is the gospel paradox. Are you humbling yourself before a holy God today? Are you repenting of your sin and believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose from the grave? Then you have a hope that will last for eternity. Can you imagine what this persecuted church was feeling like in this like few days chapters going on here? But the response was to do what? To humble themselves before God and pray. To a God who is sovereign and providential. And God reminds his church that whatever is happening at that moment does not last. And what happens to the proud and what happens to those who humble themselves before him? This passage is a great reminder of how God feels about pride. But also, don't forget what Jesus has already said in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, no matter how sophisticated or great or hard it may seem, that will overcome God's power. Nothing. He may have thought it, uh, that individual may thought that he finally won. That's not true. Herod thought he won with James. That's not true. One of my favorite hymns is by a reformer named Martin Luther called The Mighty Fortress. And it says this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Because as we will see, Herod didn't last. And throughout history, if it be Bloody Mary in Scotland in the 16th century, or Adi Amin of Uganda, they all die like any other person and become food for the worms. Herod may have had a godlike persona, but Herod ends up like all other people, dead and buried. The grave doesn't give distinction. God will deal with those who oppose him and his church. God opposes the proud, and rulers may think they are all in control, but kings and kingdoms come and go. But there is something that will last forever. Not only that, but will continue to grow and thrive. Let us see how God sustains his church and now puts an end to a source of that persecution because the word of God bursts out and spreads again in Jerusalem. As we see in verses 24 to 25, what will last? In verse 24, but the word of God increases and multiplied. You see these wonderful three-letter words, but. But. Herod, full of himself, but Herod died, 
But what does not die, what does not stop, God's word increased and multiplied. It gives us a contrast. Herod did not last. He did not grow. He did not flourish. He wasn't who he thought he was. He wasn't the divine provider. And the battle had already been won. And when you come up against God, it's a guaranteed loss. Maybe you think that as a person you're winning for a time, but you're forgetting that God is sovereignly using whatever the circumstances you thought you were doing to achieve your own good for his glory and the good of his people. The enemies of the gospel try to stop the gospel from spreading, but God enables his word to increase, meaning like to grow like a tree that starts from an acorn into a mighty oak. But then it doesn't just increase, it multiplies. So it's not just one tree, but a forest of mighty oaks that flourish as a forest. The gospel growth means church growth, by the way. As God's word increases, more people are called to Jesus. What does this mean for us? You know, Holcomb, a commentator, says this, with Herod's death, the word of God increased and multiplied. God directly intervenes to eliminate another obstacle to his plans, giving, providing that no human can stand in the way of his redemptive work. The world may bring distress and mourning, but it cannot ultimately shake those who have been touched by the power and the grace of the resurrected Christ. They pray fervently amid persecution, threats, and suffering, and God works beyond even what they can ask or imagine. And we see that immediately in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem. See, Barnabas and Saul have completed their mission of bringing the funds from this young church of Antioch to this church that will need them in Jerusalem. And that young church gave out of the generosity that they have experienced through Jesus Christ. And Saul and Barnabas are now bringing with him this man named John Mark, which we'll get into in a little bit. He's an interesting fella. The word of the God has increased in such a way that the new church in Antioch was itself a sending church of sending people out to other parts of this world. God's word and his promises are what will last. Not a king, not his kingdom. We look at this and as a reminder of praying that we can be faithful disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ as we seek to plant churches in London and this area by sending out people, by raising funds for those churches but also praying that we can continue to send out missionaries to plant churches in other parts of this world, such as the Yingers in Spain. We continue to pray that God would bring growth to, in, in spiritual depth that would allow us to send out people to reach the lost in this city and throughout this world. So what, you may ask? Kings and kingdoms will fail but the word of the Lord will stand forever. 
And I've been hit with this because I think in our culture currently right now, I don't care how old you are, I think this is reality for our culture. We are so, so short-sighted. I love history. You want to know why I love history? Because it always reminds me that everything falls apart except for God's Word. Over and over and over again, I see someone being raised up who hates the church. And over and over and over again, I see that they're dead in the ground, food for the worms. Kings and kingdoms will fail, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And as I look at this, two things come out, two subjects. The first one is pride. John Calvin said that this account of Luke's shows the end that awaits the enemies of the church. It also shows how greatly God hates pride. He hates it. Pride shows itself here in a man that refuses to give God the glory. We have all been guilty of this as sinners because sin ultimately is rooted in pride. Because sin is about getting what I want. Repentance and belief counter pride. You can't be a prideful person and repent in belief. It's impossible. You need a change of heart that acknowledges that you are a sinner, that you've rebelled against the holy God, and that you are deserving of hell, but there is a Savior who paid the price for that sin, meaning that you could not do it on your own. Repentance is the acknowledgement that God is right and I am wrong. Let's be honest, for you married folk, how well does that go in your life? How many fights, how many fights in your marriage are started with, I'm right and you're wrong? God's always right. He's always right. There's not an argument. That I have wronged and rebelled and committed treason against the one and holy God. Pride doesn't acknowledge I, I did anything wrong. When I believe that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, it's saying that everything is done and I can't even work my way into heaven. That Jesus paid the price. He is my blessed assurance as we were singing. Pride says I can somehow do more to make myself more favorable in God's eyes. But let's not forget James 4, 6 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So don't leave here today without humbling yourself before the one and only holy God because that's, that adds, there's a promise that comes with that. That promise is that he will exalt you. But this is also a reminder for us who claim to be Christians, who claim to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again because we still struggle with pride. And before someone says, I don't struggle with pride, let me give you a few examples that I've thought through this week, just with me. And if someone says, I'm better than you, that's pride. Okay? Division and disunity. When pride is present, and there's a reason why the Apostle Paul hates division and disunity and those who cause it, because God hates pride. You and I may be more concerned with our own ideas and preferences than bringing glory to God, and this can lead to division, disunity, and even conflict within the church. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13, gives us an example of how there's division in the church because people were uniting themselves with certain leaders rather than being united in Christ. 
arrogance and self-righteousness. Pride can also show itself in an attitude of arrogance and self-righteousness where we believe that we are more spiritually advanced and morally superior, because, you know, I don't do that, to others in the church community. We see that in Luke 18 with Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector as the Pharisee boasts of his own righteousness while the tax collector humbles himself, beating his chest, saying, I am unworthy, asking God for mercy. Pride comes around when we lack accountability. We may not open to the, we're not open to feedback or correction from others. I hate being corrected. You can ask my wife. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. No, that doesn't happen. That means we don't want accountability and there's an unwillingness to admit faults or make necessary changes. And we see that with King David as he commits adultery with Bathsheba and kills her husband. Because remember, Nathan goes to him the prophet Nathan then says a wonderful story and his response is, we should kill him. And Nathan's response to him was, it's you. How about focus on image and reputation? When pride is there, it can, it can also lead to a, a focus on image and reputation. There's individuals and churches that may prioritize appearing successful or impressive over truly serving and loving others. And we see this in Matthew 23 as Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their hypocritical behavior as they focus on their outward appearance and their true state of their heart. How about resistance to change? Because everybody, I hate change. I hate it. When pride is in our hearts, we may be resistant to change or new ideas, believing that our way of doing things was the only right way. Uh, I think we see this, well, we've never done it that way before, so why are we doing it this way now? We see that in Acts chapter 15. As the Jews at first thought that the Gentiles needed to go through the ceremonial law in order to be saved. Entitlement. You deserve something, but you are saying that you deserve more than what your Savior received who humbled himself to the point of death. So let me ask you, is there pride that you need to repent of? Because God hates it. We are to be a repenting people resting in the grace of God. It's important for us to be aware of how pride can rear its ugly head and, and, and to strive for humility that we have seen in our Lord and our Savior. By doing so, the church can better reflect the character of Christ and be more loving and, and an effective witness to the world because God opposes the proud. But what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. Kings and kingdoms will fail, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Whatever is of us will not last. I was reflecting upon this. I can remember my great-grandparents' names. To my fault, I can't remember their parents. But I think it's true of most of us. But the thing that will last is the word of the Lord. And that brings hope. 
In the face of what seems like a hopeless situation, the church prays. And there is soon after an example of what will last. God directly intervenes to take away anything that gets in the way of his purposes. There is no person that can stand in the way of God's redemptive work. In this world, there will be hardships. There will be distress. There will be mourning. But it can't overcome those who have known the power and grace of the resurrected Christ. It's the word, it's the world, the word of the Lord, sorry, that continues to increase and multiply. The statement in Acts 20, 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied, talks about the spread of the gospel message in the early church. This was a time of great growth and expansion for the church Christian faith as more and more people were being called out of darkness and brought into the, God's marvelous lights. Brothers and sisters, the fact that the word of God was spreading and multiplied brings great hope and encouragement to you and to me. It shows that the message of salvation is powerful, that it is effective, and that God is at work in the world today. It reminds us, Christians, that we are part of a global community of faith united in our shared belief in Jesus Christ. And when we look at what God is doing in Acts, we see the growth of the early church as a witness of the faithfulness of God and his promises. It shows that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and even in the midst of difficult circumstances, there's still hope. This gives us so much hope. Because brothers and sisters, no matter what challenges we may face in our lives, God is with us and will provide for our needs. Kings and kingdoms will fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And because of that, we can know that we have a hope that is certain because God's promises are true. The word of God increase and multiply brings us hope because it reminds us of the power and effectiveness of the gospel message and the faithfulness of God to his people. This changes us. This changes how we face whatever comes in our life. It, it pushes us out to declare the message about Jesus to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. And whatever circumstances, our heart and, or, uh, whatever circumstances of hardships we may face, they come and go. But because the word of the Lord stands forever, his promises always stand. There's always hope. Luke wants us to see that the church will grow in the face of realities of this world, pointing to a greater power than Herod and even Satan. Whatever you're facing in this world today, it will fade. Maybe not in this life, but when we face the realities of being in the presence of Christ, it all fades. It all fades. Kings and kingdoms will fail, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And that defeats our pride and brings us hope. Let us pray.